Hello, guys, and welcome to the Ansons podcast. Kind of. This is a unique drop in. As you guys know, I've been building a new platform. It is not Ansons 2.0. It is, however, related. It's called Mount Vigil. It exists to equip men and women to thrive via a deep experience of God in a significant time that, hopefully, the platform will help them understand. And the reason I am dropping in here is because I want to give you guys a taste of that project. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that I like you guys and gals. And it's true that we have become a tribe over the past decade. And so out of that, I am hoping that some of you will come, that there will be another season of interacting. I also think that some of you will find it to be very helpful. I think on another layer, I am aware of something pretty simple, which is the old line of Jesus says, you do not have for you do not ask. And I do want to ask in the risk of starting a new project and embracing what is for me a leap in the journey of masculine initiation that we've actually talked a lot about, there are real needs. Uh, first, for you guys to share the work. I'd love it if you would come. I'd love it if you'd tell someone about it who you think would like it. It would help me. It would help us. And the other is to invite you to subscribe. There are multiple ways to do that but I would go, guys, we do need your help to get this thing off the ground. The most important thing, the key thing, would actually just be that you would see if it fits in with what God is doing in your life right now. And if it does, there are ways to support the project, to help us make podcasts, uh, to help us make film. I'll just tell you, man, not easy to leave the support of an efficient and comprehensive organization and go become a one-stop shop again. So I wanted to air a show about seeing reality to you. I think you will like it. We'll be back in several days with the next And Sun show. And then I wanted to invite you guys to go to mountvigil.org to see if you resonate. And if you do, to jump in. We would love to walk with you in another season. So check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. In today's episode, Anthony and I have a conversation about reality and how important it is to be confident in our ability to interpret our own experience. 
We talk about what a sense of reality is, how to cultivate it, and what's set against it. This particular concept is Mark Andreessen's justification for developing the metaverse. So the idea is, if you're happy with reality, that's because you are privileged. Many people aren't so privileged as to be happy with physical, material, uh, real, embodied reality. Therefore, we need to build them a metaverse. And they should be able to plug into that, go in there, and experience their fantasies, experience a more just world. It's an incredibly diabolical, rhetorical turn. It will be a relief to know that when you see the world, you see rightly. I hope you find this conversation helpful. Hello and welcome to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Anthony. And I am Blaine. Did you almost forget your name for a second? I just wasn't going to introduce myself. Did you? <laughs> I have totally thought about approaching this entire Mount Vigil project with a gnome de plume. Mm-hmm. The same way that God saved the world by <laughs> not revealing himself and drawing near and taking on the form of a servant. I'm not paranoid. I'm just uh, aware. <laughs> Which is the substance of this podcast. <laughs> Before we get in to today's conversation, which is going to be about reality, I wanted to name a few things for you all who are tuning in here. Because when I think about the men and women that listen to this podcast, I feel a lot of compassion. Our hope here is that you would feel refreshed, not aggravated, when you listen to the Mount Vigil podcast, that even though we talk about dimensions of our time that are alarming and are dire, when they're read through Jesus, there's no reason to freak out. So, welcome. Welcome to the cave of Adullam, where... The rest of your friends are hanging out, biding their time, playing their part in the story of God. A little aside, you know, have you ever talked about how much I love El Hanan? Yes. <laughs> Many times. His name means the grace of God, which I kind of love because it means that one of the legendary warriors perhaps the most legendary warrior who accompanied David was the grace of God for him in his exile. Mm, that's good. So I kind of think you must think of me that way. Like, <laughs> I'm kind of the grace of God for you in, in, in your hard time, right? I thank God every day for you. <laughs> Along those lines. <laughs> so our thesis for this episode is that it is a hard time to feel confident that we can access reality and share that reality with other people. That your sense of what reality is is contested for by many parties, but that there is a story of God that you are grounded in and that you can know truth and share it with other people. Yeah, can you give me an example? All right, so an example. The other day we are at the bar and... Uh, just a few dudes, we're, we're asking those life update questions. How's it going? How can I pray for you? And uh, one of our friends uh, 
one of my best friends, he, he, he starts describing what life is like. And he says, it seems like everyone I know is experiencing intense spiritual warfare. And everyone is struggling in life. And like everyone's under it. I can't tell if my sense of reality is accurate or whether I'm just connecting dots that aren't connected. Maybe this is just our, the stage of life everyone is in. Maybe this is me just pattern matching. I happen to talk to a few people that are, that, that are stressed out. Or maybe something's going on and I'm perceiving it, but I can't feel confident that I am. Can I? And weren't you so frustrated? <laughs> on behalf of my friend, yes, I was. I wasn't frustrated with him, but, I was, but I'm like, yes, I, 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 I understand your dilemma. It's, uh, everything is telling us that it's not, even, uh, it's not even socially acceptable, actually, these days to be confident about something. On the one hand, the way to be socially acceptable is to say, I don't know. Um, who could know? How could we know? Oh, that's what you think. That's good for you. What I think is good for me. Um, that's one option. Uh, basically, giving into relativism isn't even the right word uh, because that that makes a claim about something. It's giving into nihilism. Yeah, ultimately. In, ultimately, uh, not not a not in a self aware way, but that's the end of it. That option is giving into this epistemological position in which we can't know anything. An imposed lack of confidence. Yeah, it's an imposed lack of confidence by the culture, by ourselves, by voices that uh, that want us to subject what we think is happening, what we think you know is going on to whatever the narrative outside of us is. I mean, the culture in which we're embedded here in the West does not believe in meta narratives. It does not believe in a huge shared reality outside the material world, which is itself contested. So the point is, I felt so frustrated for our friend, who is such a good man, because you could hear his confidence working against the fact that he's been taught to doubt his own experience. And that expressed itself as he began to look for lurking variables. Maybe it's because we're all 30. There must be something else. But all of his lurking variables related to the subject position, the subjectivity of his friends, which is what the culture teaches you to do. It teaches you to take your experience out of an epic, out of something that makes sense in the largest terms, down into there must be just me. Now, that's very, very hard to do, for reasons we'll get to in a second, but, I mean, would you describe our intellectual climate as being friendly to conviction? Yeah, so it's, it's even more complicated because on the one hand, our culture being the, a culture uh, influenced by postmodernism is, uh, teaches that there's no meta-narrative. Teaches that there's no overarching story and that there's no real meaning. But our culture is really talking out of both sides of its mouth because at the same time, there is a very strong meta-narrative being preached in society, being preached in, let's say, mainstream media outlets uh, as kind of an acceptable way of being in culture. And in that, this position of a strong meta-narrative is, in, is increasingly pursuing hegemony, pursue, pursuing power. So on the one hand, uh, we, we can't be confident about anything because it's all just me stewing in my feelings. 
On the other hand, there is a meta narrative that could be defined, uh, described with terms like humanism, uh, with let's say critical theories of various kinds that are all about power differentials, which is it, its own meta narrative in that like assertions of meaning are really just expressions of power differentials, which is itself a meta narrative. Anyways, kind of rambling on the subject, but mostly I'm saying that it's more complicated than we are taught you can't make meaning. The tools with which we make, we make meaning are being taken away from us and other forms of meaning are being imposed in that vacuum. Yes, yes. It actually looks like an, like an example of the Fabian strategy, which is actually a thing I think you mentioned to me years ago yeah. in an early strategy discussion. Well, named for a Roman general, the Fabian strategy is where you refuse to fight and your opponent exhausts themselves following you. So George Washington, during the Revolutionary War, masterfully deployed the Fabian strategy. I think it's accurate to say that in our conversations with our culture, our culture, let's say secular humanists, hardcore materialists, Marxists, neo-Marxists, are really efficient at using the Fabian strategy where they kind of fall back, fall back, fall back. And then when you're tired of trying to make a claim that makes sense, the tide of the battle turns and here's a really compelling story about the nature of reality that just happens to account for our inability to express ourselves in an effective way. As a side note for your own research, there is a thing, uh, there's an organization called the Fabian Society, which deploys the strategy, and it was founded uh, in the 1800s with the express purpose of uh, achieving, let's say, socialist, communist uh, ends, utopias, whatever, um, via the strategy of Fabian retreat. So rather than um, you know, pursuing Marx's goal of revolution to overhaul society and change uh, power problems and so on, um, doing it through subterfuge. Yeah, big rabbit trail here too, but let's let's point out that the Fabian strategy only works if your opponent really does have limited resources or resource limitations that are going to express themselves in the war that you're fighting. I say that because I think that actually in many ways many parts of the Western church are deploying the Fabian strategy right now and that this is a response to the trauma of the culture wars, but they're going, let's just, let's not fight for that ground right now. Let's just focus on the main thing. The problem is we are facing an opponent in the world proper that is not going to find itself exhausted as it takes that territory. It's going to keep coming. So you got to know what strategy to use when. <laughs> I, uh, if only that were the case in that, I mean, what you're saying probably is true, but also it sounds, I, I believe the reality is even worse in that for the church, let's say portions of the church to be pursuing the Fabian strategy would indicate a strategy with like a goal in mind. Whereas I think much of the church is just tired and giving in and not wanting to look bad like those evangelical 90s Republican Christians or whatever. So a lot of it's just capitulation as well as maybe something more like, here's how we're going to change things long term. Yes. And by the way, it's not hard to see why, because for sure, you made a point recently in a church teaching, you just reminded 
everyone that the church is always very hard-pressed. It doesn't, there are no easy days for the people of God trying to set things under the feet of Jesus. So when you see a church pushed to the point of exhaustion, you should not feel angry at those people for their fallibility. We should have compassion and we should see the bride the way Jesus does. She is buffeted. She is hard-pressed on every side. She's in the midst of a great cosmic war. Um, we should have compassion, mercy, and patience with each other. Yeah. We wanted to talk today about a picture of reality and how hard that is to get. Specifically, a picture of reality in Jesus. And my goal here is to get through half of my statements on this subject without being totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Or contradicted. But the thesis is, man, it is really hard right now to believe our experience of the world. Yeah, it's... It's hard to have confidence that we can know things. Uh, Yeah, period. Not not only is that news real. News real. Is that news real real? Not only is that person's report of their own experience real, but can I actually have a strong connection with any reality? So I thought we would start by establishing the terms of the conversation. You probably didn't know this about me, but I studied rhetoric. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) Uh, The rhetoric of economics, correct? That's right. And rhetoric is the study of how people share meaning and coordinate action. And at the center of the study of rhetoric is the story. There's a really interesting figure, a 20th century rhetorician, Kenneth Burke. He's one of the giants of the field. He was largely self-taught. He did not go to college and in so doing affirmed one of my lurking convictions that brilliance is reserved for people who stay outside of institutions, but more on that later. Kenneth Burke gave the world what he called the dramatistic pentad, which is a really fancy way of saying All ideas take the form of stories. Pay attention when people talk about their life, when people try to hit you with a sales pitch, when people try to talk about themselves. They'll always tell you a story, and it will always have the five features of a story, a who, what, where, why, and then bonus, sixth element, how. And that matters because if that's true, it means that our sense of story and sense of reality overlap and that our ability to operate in an effective way in the world is directly linked to our ability to hold on to a coherent story. Okay, so give me an example of an idea that told both from the Burkean sense of it's a story and not told that way. Give me, give me some, uh, some options here for ways to perceive reality. Yeah, let me give you a half dozen examples. We'll go, we'll go easy to hard here. If you want an 
a perfect example of a dramatistic pentad, of a covert story, go to any major media outlet and read through some of the headlines. So here are some headlines that we'll just use as examples from uh, the New Yorker. This is one, as Omicron spreads, Powell is in the hot seat. Now we can make this very simple and go, okay, so you have two subjects, two who's in this story, Omicron and Powell. And then you can attach them to actions like, what is Omicron doing? And Omicron doing? is the bad transformer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what Omicron is. Omicron is a COVID variant. This is a great example, by the way, of one of those places where it's hard to believe our experience. Because when I say Omicron is a COVID variant, I can hear people who I've talked to say back to me, do you think that's a real thing? And I go, ah, see, but that's a very deep question. In what sense do you mean? Do I think I could go out there and if I had the right equipment, find a virus that has been designated by that name? I do. Now, yeah, it doesn't mean that I believe the entire story that's in prison here. So let's just finish our quick dramatistic analysis and go, okay, so the Omicron spreads, Powell is in the hot seat, and then here's the little teaser you get. The Fed chair is attempting a feat that two of his predecessors failed to pull off. On the one hand, just the language here is pretty brilliant because you have jargon that the person reading is supposed to understand. What is the Fed seat? Why is the Fed seat being described like a circus performer? A feat that his predecessors failed to pull off? But if you were to go pretty deep on the level of analysis here of a story that's being presented, you would go, okay, we have a thing with a scary name going on in the background. Sort of at the introductory level, if you're telling the story, you could say Omicron was spreading. And we feel on the level of the gut what that means, right? I don't have to tell you that it's a virus. It doesn't need to be for the story to work. There is a malicious and destructive force moving in the background. But you go, what is that force? A disease. And you go, oh, okay, so that's a big deal. So the malicious force that all of us feel moving in the background, it's a virus. It's not sin. It's not a corrupt ideology. It's not some blight that's striking crops. Then you go into the foreground and go, the Fed, <laughs> the Fed chair. We can get like, man, there is some very sophisticated linguistic tools being used here, metonymy, synecdoche, uh, these powerfully persuasive. But what it shows you is that what are the forces of evil in this story? The forces of evil are in fact, unsurprisingly, the COVID virus. What are the forces of good? Hard-pressed government officials. What kind of activity is government? It's like a circus. It's glorious feats. Now, that is probably ridiculous. The government is not most like a circus. It's most like any wing of the government, like a post office. And so another way of framing this story would be you could tell a whole different story about the nature of reality that says when the fear of Omicron was sweeping the world, okay, 
Now the subject of this story is fear. The government got bogged down in bureaucratic processes. And the consequences of their own past failures. Yes. And, and so at that point, you would be left looking for the hero. You would be left looking for, okay, so there was panic. What can be done about that panic when this machine isn't working? I'm not going to go further because that's a lot of time spent on one New Yorker headline. But John 3.16 is a story. It's a very famous story. For God so loved the world that he gave his monogasaic son, that he gave his unique son, so that all who believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, various Christian denominations have taken those subjects and those actions and interpreted them in a huge variety of ways, like, God, who is he? Is he the mean and forlorn and estranged dad? Is God the pantheistic life force that the 20th century, let's say, American transcendentalists loved so much, and that will change the story? But we need, we need a very strong sense of story in order to move effectively. I feel like in local church life, one of the things that we find ourselves constantly doing is trying to read our story through the story of Jesus and have an accurate story about the difficulties we're facing. Okay, so we've, we've talked about how it's a hard time to feel like we have access to reality. And then we've talked about how human beings talk about reality pretty much always in story form. What do we do with that? Yeah, that's a really good question because I am saying more than that. I'm saying actually that reality is a story. Reality is a story. And so you'll always find people fighting over that story. We are story creatures all the way down. And I can feel one of the philosophical gravity wells here of describing, well, is that a product of human experience or a feature of reality itself? What a ridiculous question (laughs) to go. Is that epiphenomenal? Is that illusion? Is that an illusion that rides over the surface of reality and going, no. It isn't. Reality comes to us as a story, and that's a layer of our experience behind which we cannot get. And so, if we want to know what kind of place reality is, we have to know what kind of story reality is. But in many ways, the answer to that question is bigger than just that. So I'm going to ask it right back to you because I want to know what you think about that and go, why are we talking about the stories that people tell, why are we talking about reality as a story? Why does this matter, Anthony? Once we know that reality is a story, is narrative, then we ask the question of what narrative are we believing? What, narr- what, what story are we telling? And uh, it's important because there is a story of God that we were designed to live in and experience the union with God in. And that there are many other competing stories that aren't true, that are constantly seeking a primacy in our minds. And it's important to to have some way of sifting between them. Yeah, so one more 
point before we get onto the obstacles to a strong sense of story and a strong sense of meaning in Jesus and then talk about how to get there. Because many of the obstacles right now to a strong sense of story are actually in the way of a related concept, which is a sense of reality. And I hope that we are not losing you guys. <laughs> I hope that we're not losing you all. But you can picture it this way. Picture a layered cake and the top layer, the frosting, the thing that is going to hold the cake together. Now, frosting probably doesn't do that, but it does in a visual sense, is your sense of story. It is the, the overreaching, the, cover, the thing that covers everything. How do you interpret your experience? Well, you have a strong story into which your experience fits. But then under that, one of the things that builds a person's sense of story is just their sense of reality. What we mean by that, and this varies a little bit between the disciplines, is our ability to interpret our experience as we relate to the people we live with and the people we love. And hopefully, in most cases, those two groups overlap, but they do not always So a sense of reality, man, it is a big, 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 big deal, and it is opposed right now. So a sense of reality would be, I touch something that's hot. I go, ow. I look over at a friend. My friend goes, oh, man, I see concern on their face. They go, are you okay? Their concern communicates two related ideas. One is that stoves are hot, and if you touch them, you'll burn yourself. And two is that I matter. They don't want me to burn myself. Now, in psychology, refusing to validate a person's sense of reality is called gaslighting. You see this with kids where I have an infant son. When he trips and falls, he looks at the nearest adult to make sense of his experience. And if he sees fear and concern, he'll start to cry. If he sees, whoa, way to go, enthusiasm, he kind of has to reconcile, I'm hurting right now, but maybe that was cool. And so what this means is that I just did something adventurous. And it's up to people who love him, to his parents, to us, to walk the tightrope there and to communicate a complicated experience. So your sense of... Reality, man, would be to look out the window and see a mob of people going down the street and go, there's a mob of people. And then to go look at someone who cares about you and they would go, wow, yeah. And you would see in their furrowed brown confusion, both the fact that there was a group there and that it was confusing and that it was important if they were puzzled, they wanted to know more about it. We're very rarely puzzled by things that we're indifferent to. But of course, in that example, right now, that never, ever happens. Instead, we look out a window and see a mob of people and then turn in our technological spaces to say, whoa, isn't that crazy? And then we hear from one quarter, there's no one is there. We hear from another quarter, that's not a mob, those are holiday shoppers. We hear from another quarter, those are anarchist rioters, and so on and so forth. And the sum total of that experience is a 
deep inner fragmentation that we'll explore in more detail here in a second. But just to go, this is how they relate. You have a sense of reality that you cannot hold on to by yourself. And your sense of reality is you have an experience and then you look to your loving relationships to validate and interpret that experience. So people who have had really intense experiences of God can be persuaded that they did not by cynical and disillusioned companions, right? You can come back from a church service where you felt the presence of God. You can come back from a hunting trip or a mountain bike ride where you felt the presence of God and start talking about what happened. And the person can come back to you and go, I think you're just talking about adrenaline, man. I mean, I feel excited when I ride bikes too, but that doesn't mean it's God. And so you go, oh, so this feeling isn't. And you begin to create a separation in your own heart between the experience that you had that was God and the way you interpret it. So this is important. And then your sense of reality fits into your sense of story because let's go just one more example. My experience that my life is really hard in some domains right now. Another, it's very easy, but I was trying to write the book that we're working on. And I shared with a friend who's also a writer, I had the worst writing day I can remember. I couldn't put thoughts together. I just could not do it. And his question for me was, are you trying to say that Jesus is Lord at the end of the world? He didn't need to say anything else, right? Because to go, and I'll bet you don't need to hear anything else too, to go, what was the story, Anthony, that he was orienting me to? Well, that story was, uh, was a wise prompt, and he was saying, Yes, that is what you're doing. And if that's the case, then of course, there will be strong warfare set against you. That uh, the stakes are high. Um, Everyone is racing for the throne, racing for uh, reality itself. And uh, your work will be contested. Yes! And the amazing thing here, and hopefully for you listeners, is that, right, what just happened there? That was both a shared sense of reality and a shared sense of story. Well, the cool thing about your friendship with that person, um, was that Josh? Yeah. Is additionally, given your, your history together, he was implying more than that. He was also saying, and yes, you are on the right side, the side of Jesus, and you will be resourced, and there is provision for you, and so on. All of that was certainly implied. Yes. And let me tell you, the exp- it was such a good experience because the story I had been in, was I am a person. A person is not important. That's my way of translating. I'm just a guy who sucks at writing, full stop, and to go, who is in that story? Just me, by myself, no God, no demons, no devil, no other people to help me, and I just can't do it. That was actually a very convincing story that day until I told a friend, man, I brought him an experience. I had a hard time writing. And then, as you said, he related to our history together. He related to our shared, most of the time, understanding of the world and went, are you trying to say Jesus is Lord? With that look in his eye that told me, you know that the spiritual powers opposed to Jesus don't want people to thrive. They don't want them to get the life that's available in God. So it's going to be hard. You are a warrior. 
in a battle. Don't forget it. But of course I'll forget it, which is why I need people around to help me make sense of the world. This example on this point is really interesting when you think about like what is contrasted with out in the world. And this story is not only a repudiation of um, the postmodern sense that there is no narrative, but also a repudiation of what, it, what, what, what that postmodern worldview is attacking, which is modernity, enlightenment thinking that people are atomistic units that can access reality by the powers of their reason, something, something to that effect. So it's interesting because um, there is a sort of relativism implied in this, but uh, it's, it's really saying that like people are designed to live in families, designed to live in familial relationship with each other, and that it's inevitable the way that we uh, experience reality is shaped by the people around us. Yes, we are. We are supposed to live in families, among people who love us, who help us interpret and validate our experience. But we don't, and more on that in just a second. Now that we've outlined the territory, our sense of reality is our ability to trust our experience of the world as we relate to other people. Our sense of story is the most important thing, which is can we situate ourselves in the real story of the cosmos? Both of those things are opposed right now. And I thought it would be helpful, even briefly, to touch on sort of three, three major obstacles to living in, living oriented to the story of Jesus, and then move into the hopeful territory, which is the solutions that have always existed and are available to us right now. So the first of these uh, big inhibitors to accessing reality is that the story of God does not arrive to us intact. We could talk for weeks about the history of the church and um, her different parts. But in this case, let's talk about the Western church and how she has held the story of God. The Western church has been shaped by uh, the Western worldview. As we've mentioned before, the Enlightenment, we've talked about postmodernity, modernity, not moving in order here. There's, there's a general worldview held in the West that tells us how we can access reality and the Western Church has largely been shaped by that, much more than we realize. In, in, our, in the history of how we um, separated from, uh, let's say, the Catholic Church and, and the Orthodox Church during the Great Schism and, and became Protestants, and how that, uh, how that separation brought us to where we are now in the Church, we told the story a certain way, leaving out very important points. Now, there, there, there are some good things that came there as well, but uh, it wasn't one simple, straightforward, good thing that happened. The development of Protestant, Protestantism and uh, the Western Church. Yes. I sometimes think of this like a squabbling family that has divided an inheritance into pieces and then stopped talking. And to the credit of the global church, there's a thing called, you know, being ecumenical or relating to the whole global church, all of the people of God, all those who call on the name of Jesus. And the Anglican church, 
the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church and its iterations, those bodies are working to talk to each other. But part of our problem here is that the way of Jesus often seems very inefficient. To me, frustratingly inefficient. And it takes a long time, and it's easy to miss if you don't choose it. And, and what I mean is that the gospel, the whole story of God, never arrives intact. I gave these examples in a piece of writing I shared with you recently, but of how in Acts 18, when the Alexandrian Jew, Apollo, centers the story, he has received, you know, some part of the gospel. He has had a real encounter of Jesus and he's teaching. And then people who I would very much like to know, Priscilla and Aquila, find out about him and they do not shut him down. They do not oppose him in public. They invite him over and ask him what he knows about the gospel of Jesus. And then there's this great line where it goes, and they explained the way to him more adequately. Which, by the way, is a very chill way of talking about an incomplete gospel. They didn't cure him of his heresy. They did not return him to orthodoxy more adequately. And other examples, you have the famous story of the Ethiopian eunuch who has the book of Isaiah but cannot understand it. Now, the book of Isaiah has many important pieces of the worldview of Jesus and the story of God. But he does not know what's going on there which is the way I feel a lot of the time in some of those books. There's a church in Samaria that gets the gospel of Jesus. And then Peter shows up and asks if they have received the Holy Spirit. And they say no. And, and actually this story, like all stories, has caused a lot of infighting among churches because they go, but you, you definitely receive the Holy Spirit when you believe in Jesus, right? And I go, yeah, I think so. But they still had to have the apostles lay hands on them and give them the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that seems to be the case too. So the story of God, like the way of Jesus, is a very real and patient and inefficient communication technique, an inefficient way. And it's pitted against an efficient, viral race to the bottom of the brain stem anti-meaning machine. But the piece there is just to highlight for a second, if we are going to live in the story of God, if you know, you've had an experience of God and then that's been interpreted as an experience of Jesus and then you begin to get revelation, apocalypse, understanding, we really do have to make ourselves students of the story, which is a lifetime discipline so that we know who's involved and we know what the stakes are. And it becomes easier and easier to read our lives through that story. But you know, the example I just gave of my day writing is a confession and a real example of how hard it is in the daily to live in the story of God, to treat final reality as though it's real. But that is not the only obstacle. That's good. That's a very positive spin on the story not arriving intact. <laughs> <laughs> you could say like, oh, there are all these problems. We've, we've left this out. We've left that out. Um, or you could say, 
It doesn't arrive intact because it's big and it takes your entire life and the history of the entire church to work out the story of God. I read a, a book of church history or so a year. Okay, so I've learned when I'm reading a book of church history to pray ahead of time and kind of each time I come back to the book for covering. Because the first time I read a, a book of church history, I almost stopped believing the story. <laughs> it, it wasn't like, oh, that's great. I, I suddenly have such a, a better understanding of the story of God and the history of the church. And I was like, man, how could this possibly be the way that God is working? Uh, how could this possibly be God's design? Um, the church, the bride of Christ, all, all, you know, the, uh, the, the, the expression of God's wisdom to the powers and to all creation sounds great until you read a book of church history and you're like, what the hell is wrong with people? How could this be good? Um, yeah, I recently actually threw the first volume of a two-volume, and by recently, like several weeks ago, of a two-volume church history into the trash. <laughs> yeah. It was bad, and I was frustrated. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, probably some, some of it has to do with the way the genre is approached and the way an historian just lays out, like, the things that are interesting. Oh, it's interesting that these people schismed or that this person was burned at the stake or whatever else. So I'm sure a lot of it has to do with we don't have great writings, or at least I've yet to find a great writing of the, the story of the church that is, let's say, devotional or uplifting, or that reads it, reads the story of the church according to the story of God. Um, anyways, all that, all that to say, that's how I used to approach the history of the church. But increasingly, uh, rather than reacting in just angst and anger and, uh, and doubt about everything, I have been growing in my ability to look at the church with compassion, with patience, with love, and actually to see throughout that entire sordid history how much incredible beauty has, uh, is there as well. Yeah, that's good, man. It's funny because these things really are there all the time where Jesus describes the kingdom of God, which is expressed in the church, as a net cast widely into the sea that brings in all kinds. And then I look at churches, I look at the church and go, man, what is the deal? But it goes back to apocalypse and needing to see things the way Jesus is saying, because the reality is it's going well. Jesus is not losing. And how many Old Testament sermons have I heard on the story of Abraham's family and going, you know, at multiple, at multiple moments, it might look like this is going really bad. But if you see the strategy in the way that Jesus sees it, it is working in a brilliant way. It is, it is so cunning. It's so amazing. And against the overpowering violence of the world. Mm. You have this totally humble, slow-moving take on the nature of a servant to do it while doing intense spiritual warfare entity that I would like to see accurately more often because it can be quite fun to do that. Mm. The next domain relates to something that... For some reason, I don't really want to talk about. And by 
I don't really want to talk about. I mean that the first time I tried to start talking about this, just now I had to get out of the chair and walk around the room. I don't really know why that is, but I know that you happen to love this idea. So Anthony, why don't you just take, (laughs) why don't you just help our friends with what we're calling problem two, though there are more. That's hilarious because I was just saying, I don't know if we're leaving that part in, how much I don't want to talk about the subject of trauma. Uh, on, on the one hand, it's just distasteful to me, and I feel like it's overdone. It's this, the narrative of trauma is, is taking over like so much of the popular worldview. And I, 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 I always, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a contrarian, so I, I always question stuff like that. But having recently uh, done a counseling intensive, uh, gone after my own heart in the places uh, that I've experienced trauma, I just can't deny the importance of this category. Trauma as an inhibitor to our ability to access reality. It's important because reality, I would say now more than ever, is traumatizing. And another way of talking about that, just to like get this on the table, is the modern world, the way that most people live, is profoundly anti-human, is profoundly unhealthy. It makes it hard to live well. Yeah, I agree with that assessment and with those frustrations. There is a way in which trauma, in quotes, is taking over our secular dialogues. You know, you said earlier that part of our culture's mythology, part of our culture's story, is one in which the principal actors, the subjects, are classes are groups of people and that history is the history of power struggle. This is not, strictly speaking, a new idea, but it is the background idea right now. And inside of that, you know, you have trauma as the state of the oppressed. Now, the thing is, is that those traumas are often real and that we don't have to, I'm telling myself here, I don't have to discount them in order to tell the story of God. But right now, we live after the fall. And so every human being on the planet is living a life that is characterized to greater and lesser degrees by trauma, what some therapists call capital T trauma, which are acute tangible, often violent experiences, and lower T trauma, which are often absences or just the death by a thousand cuts or the slow grind. And we can't not mention this one because it really is hurting the people that we live with, the people that we love, our church and community here. So if you want to know whether or not this is true, just take any domain of human life and define it. That's step one. Like, a family is meant to be. A life with God is meant to be. A church is meant to be. Work is meant to be. Exercise is meant to be. We recognize, fortunately, we're built on the level of the soul to recognize these real things and then go, 
my experience of work has mostly been or includes and write some of those things. My experience of exercise has been plagued by so many injuries and so much frustration, even this year. And if we don't address those things, we are going to schism on every level of our nature. There are two kind of odd therapists. And I say odd because people who are very spiritually aware but who are not allegiant to Jesus, are to be handled with care, let's say, at least when it comes to engaging their writing. And so one of these guys who's a major leader, he's a polymath in the field of neuroscience, is Peter Levine. Peter Levine, I'm not sure how it's said. But he talks about life force, capital L, capital F. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know your type. You're a type of academic that gets special treatment over and over again in C.S. Lewis's writings because he knew that you were a way of being spiritual while also being materialist, which is a dangerous thing to be. Nonetheless, these guys have identified and put words to very real and important things. So here's just a quote from Peter Levine. Trauma annihilates our connection to ourselves, to the embodied self, to what is true and eternal in us. There's another therapist, Diane Poole Heller, who wrote that trauma makes you lose trust in your feelings, thoughts, and even your body. So trauma divides a person. We talked about earlier being gaslit in relationship, burning yourself on the stove and turning, and instead of seeing love and concern, seeing indifference. That would create a division between your body, the things that you actually sensed, and your mind, the story that you're telling yourself. And these things add up so that eventually it's very, very, very hard to trust our experience of the world, to trust our senses, to trust our intuitions, to relay them with people. And someone can just skip getting that back. Right, Anthony? (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) if you're like me hearing this story of trauma what it does to us and the importance of being healed of being restored in those places that we are broken is is just a hard thing to hear it seems like fluff to me um i mean that that's just like my initial reaction to it mostly in the past and i guess talking about these things um but it really is essential the, the difference between having a place of deep brokenness in your heart that is just stuck, these loops, and the, the, the difference between that and having a way to, invite, to, to open that area up to Jesus and invite his ministry into it is profound. And it changes the way that you experience reality. It changes the way that you understand the story of God, the way that you relate to people how you show up in a room, it truly is important. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I say this so begrudgingly. I don't want to talk about this. Uh, if, if, if you like me and it helps you, the word trauma is quite a buzzword right now, but if it's true that we live in a great spiritual war, that we are kind of always surrounded by, uh, there's always ordinance going off around us, of course we would take flack. Um, and the word brokenness is 
kind of a more generalized word for that ambient trauma that you were talking about. And when I, when I, when I think of those things, I'm like, oh yeah, obviously we take hits on a daily basis, I would say. And sometimes they go very deep and they get very stuck. And, and Jesus has particular healing for you in those places. Yes, I need to remind myself that the listeners of this podcast, I don't think are going to be, no, I can just say this with confidence. Hi, listeners. You aren't vulnerable. You aren't the kind of person who's going to get sucked in to the world's version of navel-gazing, which is, it's possible to get stuck on this point. But honestly, for most of the people here listening, most of the people that I happen to live my life with, that's not the danger. Now, people get stuck on this point when they accept a definition of themselves as primarily a broken person, primarily an oppressed person, primarily a victim, simply instead of primarily the beloved of God. And these are subtle switches, but to go, don't read yourself, please, as primarily a broken person. Experience yourself as the beloved of God, a warrior in a great battle, a bringer of life to a world that is in peril, who has suffered greatly along the way and needs to pay attention to those things. And skipping forward to the end a little bit, because this is just something that we can't avoid if we really want our people to have a strong vision of reality in Jesus, would be a few recommendations. Become a student of your own heart, of what it means to have a heart. This is a thing that can be done in the long term. The great thing is you kind of just need to do a first thing. So if you have never read Dan Allender's book about story and trauma to be told, read that book. If you've never read Dr. Jim Wilder's book, Renovated, about attachment, love, and the healing of human beings, that would be a legitimate place to start. You were joking. I don't know if we included it earlier that I tell all my friends to get counseling or when I find out that someone hasn't been to counseling for like more than three or four years, I'm like, you should sit down, get a few hours over a few weeks with a therapist just to get some eyes on your story. I think you'd find that really helpful. So go, these are all in the domain of learning what it means to have a heart and to take care of that heart over the course of your life, which happens slowly and you just need to pick one. The way that I want to turn this, uh, this recommendation into a spiritual discipline is something like, we're recommending the discipline of receiving the kindness of God. And that, uh, that has been very hard for me in this whole trauma discussion. In fact, even as, as I say that, I literally get this like a wave of emotion in my chest. And uh, my eyes feel like they want to water up. Um, so Jesus has so much kindness for you in these places in your heart. And it is a spiritual discipline, just like the discipline of prayer or fasting or celebration, the discipline of receiving the kindness of God is a beautiful 
one to practice. Here's a concrete example. So let's say I'm going throughout my day, something happens or some memory comes up that uh, just triggers like a deep wound of shame in my past, in my heart. And rather than doing any number of things that I would normally do to deal with that, whether it be pacify myself in some way, um, get angry at myself or someone else because of the shame of feeling shame and, and so on, pausing and acknowledging like, oh, this really hurts. I'm feeling pain in my chest. And that pain, I think, is shame. I'm feeling shame around this thing, this agreement, put it in words. And then Jesus, like, thank you for your tenderness and kindness toward me. Thank you for caring about my heart and my wholeheartedness, my restoration. I just open this area in my heart up to you, and I ask you to touch it, to heal me, to minister to me, Holy Spirit, to be my counselor. I ask you to fill me with life, and, uh, and I just like expose this area to you and ask you to do what you will. That's a concrete example of one way to practice the discipline of receiving the kindness of God. Woof. The third bucket is the catch-all. You always need a catch-all bucket. This is like some of the drawers in my kitchen. We talk about obstacles to a coherent story, that the story of God, for one thing, isn't neatly packaged in its entirety anywhere. It comes over uh, a lifetime of relating to, in really wonderful ways, God. Then we have this asterisk point, which is, by the way, you have a heart. Oh, it just happens to be the case that when human beings get traumatized, their sense of reality fragments, and they lose the ability to trust or even relate to some of their senses. Yeah, big deal, big deal. So address that. Three, oh, you're living in the middle of a massive war. I would say this bucket is your sense-making ability is targeted and vast resources are being deployed to overtake it and to, uh, to imbue you with a certain sense of reality. Yes. Starting with the fact that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He is the deceiver. Satan is the original gaslighter. So when I am experiencing oppressive spiritual warfare... And the sentence that I hear is, you are an effing idiot. That is actually diabolical gaslighting. Because I'm not an effing idiot. I am a son of God who's being raised up to maturity to do a great good. Who's being fiercely attacked by spiritual powers. But I'm being told a lie about myself that's really hard to resist in those moments. So there's the whole spiritual domain of the enemy will directly lie to you, will tell you lies about your soul and about the world so that you can't see reality accurately. Small deal there. And what kinds of tools does he use? <laughs> well, Anthony, I'm glad that you asked because over time, the church identified what came to be called 
the unholy trinity. Now, the problem with talking about the unholy trinity, little aside, is that it makes it sound like the unholy trinity is like in kind or even similar to the triune God. It isn't. It's the unholy three things. There's only (laughs) one trinity. Exactly. It's the unholy perverse alliance of destructive powers. Try it. Yeah, which are the world, the flesh, and the devil. I thought they were those, uh, the Japanese mafia. (laughs) Oh, man. Make sure you keep those sleeves rolled down. (laughs) And so... There, there is the tool of just direct assault, a thought that you hear in your head, an interpretation of an experience right after you left it. I mean, all these things add up to destroy a person's sense of story. If you leave a dinner with your family and immediately feel that went terrible, right? That's a story. That's an interpretation. That is an assault on your sense of reality. As, just as well as a straightforward attempt to crush your soul. But there's a long game there, too. And then there's sort of the vulnerability of the flesh, but it is the world with which we are, we are largely concerned right now. Because the, the illusion, again, in this unholy triad is that the world is distinct from the devil. And you go, well... The world is the pattern of activity that puts human beings on the throne of God. However, it's never true. The enemy and the world, the depraved spiritual powers, the demons are always working together with an inspiring, destructive human institutions and whatnot. So they're not actually separate. I was, when I was reading for this podcast, I had the thought as I was looking at some technologies, man. These look sort of like the gods of Egypt to me from which we need to be delivered. And I stopped and sat back and went, well, they're probably related, actually, (laughs) in some direct way. I mean, where should we start? Because in almost every sphere, our sense of story is aggressively targeted. Let's start with the way that digital technologies shape our sense of reality. Yeah, this is where a person's adrenal glands could really become aggravated. But let's just talk about, say, the internet itself. Now, there is a thing called the GPT-3, because it's the third generation algorithm. This is a language processing algorithm. And it is able to consume an enormous amount of information, and then it's able to adopt the voice of almost any writer and produce text. This is just one of the ways that human beings in their quote-unquote innovation always create horrible dystopias. (laughs) But uh, just an example. So WordPress is still the majority of the publishing internet. And every day around the world, we get about 1.8 billion new words that are written by people that appear on the internet. As of 2020, and that's a year ago, the GPT-3 algorithm was 
putting out four and a half billion words a day. So it was writing the overwhelming majority of the internet every day. And the problem about it is, is that you can tell the GPT-3 algorithm, write me a scientific paper that sounds just like Stephen Hawking wrote it with 18 sources and on how social media promotes human connectivity. And then you unleash that beast upon the world. If you want a couple, if you're curious about this, there's a website about what I view as disastrous technologies. They view them in a more agnostic way called Singularity Hub. Uh, and they wrote an article called A Walled Garden for AI. How brilliant is that? I think I've read this article. Actually. For, for the folks at home, a walled garden is a subtle way of talking about paradise, of talking about Eden. You know, the word paradise describes a walled garden. And so they're talking about, yeah, an Eden of artificial intelligence. And this is a thing that is actively destroying our ability to trust anything because we can't possibly keep up in terms of our own information processing with the ability of a freaking intelligent algorithm to write persuasive text faster than all of the humans on the planet combined. So there's one, but let me just name a couple others about, you know, I'm hoping, if you never saw the social dilemma that would be a good use of an evening. Because it talks about the fact that we live in a world saturated with social media. Here, here, like here in the US, these very important pages, but these large Facebook pages were able to reach more than a third of the American population every single day. And so we have created technologies that prey on every part of the human being to get their attention, to keep them interested, and to control their behavior. Now, like, sometimes I don't know how much of this is new. If this is review, I hope it's productive review for you. But there's a brilliant professor Shoshana Zubov, who calls this surveillance capitalism and trying to write about the fact where she goes, surveillance capitalists treat all human activity as free raw material. So everything you ever do on the internet, most of the information from your apps, unless you know how to turn that off, basically all of your information that's freely available is taken and then mind for behavior influencing techniques. I mean, I was telling you before this, but almost, I don't know, somewhere between five and seven years ago when I first discovered the neuroscience labs at places like Google, at places like Facebook, and went, wait a second, why does Google have a very cleverly named brain team? where you can go and you can have access to everything. And the copy on that Google page is so evil, so subtly violent. But go, yes, we are creating technologies 
that influence people by tapping into the basest parts of our nature. So like just one example, there's something that neuroscience call the salience network, uh, and it is the part of the brain that relates to a threat. And it's sort of the gatekeeper of the brain, picking out which of the parts of our reality senses, which of the parts of our experience should get thrown up onto the level of consciousness. Now, these have been hacked by corporations like Facebook to constantly keep our attention by sort of putting us into a continuous state of alarm with information that shows us our version of the boogeyman that is, by the way, not actually real. I'm going to give two sources. By the way, if you want to look at any of sort of the ways that technology is destroying human beings, check out the Center for Humane Technology in their research. Good source. But there was this incredible uh, report from the MIT Technology Review in 2020 that went, hey, so we wanted to look at the information that was out there. You know, at this point, we're all sort of familiar with fake news and fake information. I think we dismiss it too quickly when they went, so listen, in 2019 and 2020, there's a Facebook report that the MIT Tech Review obtained that was like, what pages are getting the most engagement? These are the top 15 pages in every, any discipline that are the ones that end up reaching a third of the population. And it went, of those, of the most influential pages on the platform, how many of the Christian ones were fake, were run by professional troll farms around the world? All of them, all of them were fake, were information weapons. And that tracked onto, if you identified as black on Facebook, it was something like 50%. Native American, it was something like a third. Like massive portions of the stories that we see are not only not real, they've been designed to frustrate us. They've been designed to traumatize us, further destroying our sense of reality. But it puts us in a state where we can't trust anything that we hear or see or read. We can't trust any of the feedback of our friends. And by the way, we're building technology to do that more efficiently. Yeah, I have a background in being part of this problem. Uh, I used to be a digital marketer, and uh, I remember sitting in meetings, listening to marketers at a Christian nonprofit. I've worked at a few, so I won't, I won't name the one. Sit, sitting in a meeting where, the, where the, the group of marketers were debating how bad they should make people feel. Like we have a metric that tells us the sentiment of our users, of our audience, who are called users, and we do this thing that we know makes them unhappy. So should we stop doing that? But if we stop doing that, it won't, we'll make less money. We, now we're raising money for a good cause, so do we keep on doing this? And so on, right? Just this, this sort of, ostensibly a discussion of ethics, but uh, really it's just people enjoying the fact that they have so much influence over thousands and thousands of humans to be able to make them feel happy or unhappy to a certain degree, a very measured degree. I also remember 
working on mobile apps and working with uh, analytics software that we installed on our app that had an addiction metric. And again, this, this app was for a nonprofit and it was a fine app in its own way, but where you know, I'm, I'm sitting here installing software and setting it up that measures how addictive, and it's like, and it's like a, um, an amalgamation of several specific numbers of how addictive a product is. And the goal was to increase the addictiveness. That was a good thing. Um, I remember reading books like Designing for Behavior Change, uh, Applying Psychology and Behavioral Economics, reading books like Hooked, How to Make Addictive Products, basically, and so on. And I told myself, oh, this is, first of all, I hate this uh, because I know that all the digital tools I use are built this way. I feel like I can justify my, you know, my, my own participation in this in this issue, in this way, by saying that it's for a good cause, and as long as you're manipulating human beings with, you know, user experiences that, as long as long as those user experiences are toward, let's say, beneficial ends for humanity, it's justifiable, and so we I, we won't use the superpower for evil. But the fact is that it's really all evil in in a very profound way. Now it's not all equally evil, but yeah, like eventually I had to repent of my digital marketing ways and I shut down my digital marketing business and I left my digital marketing jobs because I was I was sick and tired of being part of this and sick and tired of making my whole world about these companies that that want to destroy humanity and companies like Google and Facebook and others um, that their Google's goal their stated goal used to be don't be evil and now it's just whatever it is but it's no longer don't be evil and they're I would say they're expressly evil and anyways, that's, that's, that's my own personal experience with what you're talking about. But it's hard to overstate the problem. And I, I guess one, one encouraging aspect is, like, I, I remember for years talking to people about this, and everyone just told me I was paranoid. Like, I'm like, you should get off social media. I shut down my social media. And everyone just kind of shrugging it off. And it seems to now be hitting a bit of a, a critical mass of people who are waking up to the shaping forces of digital technologies in their lives and more and more people i know are finally getting off of this ride yeah and i can hear past conversations that i've had and i i can hear people arguing back that well and and explaining why they use these technologies i think a little bit of our hope here is to present them as they are so that we can make real choices. Uh, So that hopefully, my ideal would be a kind of evacuation. You were talking about working at Christian companies. I've heard so many arguments in favor of leveraging social media for positive ends. It does not work. And the reason that is is that there's a, so there's a thing in technology that is described the race to the bottom of the brainstem. What are the most fundamental human behaviors? They often relate to the seven deadly sins, and how can we use those to influence or or definitely control what a person does? That does not build mature individuals, which is the goal of the people of God. So 
you know, you worked with a nonprofit with a noble mission. Many of these organizations are trying to do really wonderful things, but all you can do is extract money or extract attention or shame a person into a behavior, right? You, if you are going to use these technologies, you're going to have to pull a, a primal lever. And that might seem necessary in order to like avert some kind of disaster in a person's life. But we have to admit, even though it's frustrating, that the kind of change we want to promote in people is the kind of thing that can't be done by social media. Is there a little pool of kind of creative exceptions? Yeah, of course, kind of. Like, you know, I worked at an organization that developed my sort of a Christian meditation app, and it was like, and I got to hear some of those conversations where there are impulse influencing mechanisms that you can attach to an app to make a person more likely to use it. And do you want to do that so that they give their attention to God? The definite answer is no. You don't want to use a person's risk aversion. Now, God will use whatever you give him. But there was this like, hey, if monasteries had bells that directed the rhythms of a person's day, couldn't we use this noise-making device in a person's pocket? And I go, yes. And your motive matters. The noble intentions there are good. We're talking about some of the smartest people on the planet partnered with groundbreaking neuroscientists. There's a thing called the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, right? The mesolimbic dopaminergic system. This is a powerful circuit in the brain related to desire. Well, it didn't take long for psychologists and neuroscientists to figure out that it was much, 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 much more powerful than a person's satisfaction metric, right? So you could build a technology that showed a person pictures of things that they already have. They may look at it, but they won't look at that as often and as impulsively as things that they don't have and can't have. Well, what do you think an amoral and immoral business that is fighting for your attention and time is going to do? It's going to pull on the primal lever. So I think also, you know, when our friends talk about engaging these spaces, man, I will say, even in a very, very healthy, healthy church community, we have to put out social fires every once in a while, even if they're just between two people, where it's like, I saw something that this person posted and it really landed in a wrong way for me, and now I'm struggling through forgiveness, and I'm like, what were either of you doing mm. in the strip club? Okay. <laughs> Why were you both there? Well, we have a stripper ministry. Be like, I don't think you need to go there to minister to strippers, everyone. Maybe pushing this metaphor a little hard, but to go, if you are going to engage certain technologies, you will be exposed to their harmful effects and need the protection of God. If I told you that you had to walk into a building that was on fire to save people, I think you would ask, is God with me? Is he going to protect me? Is, do I want to do this? Because I know I'm going to suffer and be affected. Well, most of the technology with which we've surrounded ourselves 
is exactly like that. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Like invite Jesus into this discussion. Don't just go it the way that you think is best. And uh, because obviously we're not Luddites here. Um, we are building a nonprofit that is using a podcast and a website as primary means of communicating to people. Now, our, you know, so like we've, we've had these discussions internally. We're not being hypocrites about it. We aren't using social media for Mount Vigil. I don't think we ever will. Um, so, you know, we're, 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 being, we're, we're trying to be quite intentional, even for ourselves, uh, especially for ourselves and how we do this work. Because I think a big, a big reason uh, it's complicated is that the, the medium is the message. So you might be a church, um, you know, you might be running a social media feed for a church and putting out Bible verses, you know, beautiful nature photos with superimposed Bible verses all the time. And yes, God can use that. Um, he can, if he can use me, he can use that. He uses broken vessels. But it is important to know that by virtue of encouraging people to encounter meaning in these places, to encounter the scriptures in these places, just as an example, we, we are, there is the, the forum itself, the technology itself is a message. And it does, uh, it, uh, it actually like makes us more susceptible to being influenced by any other voices that are using these technologies as well. Um, and anyways, it's, it's complicated. Uh, we're, we're not trying to be simplistic about this. So the, the short version is uh, pray about how you use digital technologies and be willing to make hard choices to let go of things that uh, might be uh, permissible but not beneficial. Yes. It's important to talk about technology because these digital environments, I mean, my goodness, the war on reality, we've talked with our friends about, there is a thing called reality privilege, which is a way about talking about the fact that the world is diverse and things that are diverse have a deep element of inequality in them. The middle of the American desert is not the Amazon rainforest. If you are looking for food to eat, you will probably have an easier time on the coasts of Hawaii in a fishing vessel than you will in the Rocky Mountains in the winter. Now, reality privilege calls that bad. And it goes, not everyone can have access to the same kind of reality. And they call that reality deprivation. This is not an exaggeration, my friends. This is, these are real conversations that are being had by the intellect. This particular concept is Mark Andreessen's justification for developing the metaverse. So the idea is, if you're happy with reality, that's because you are privileged. Many people aren't so privileged as to be happy with physical, material, uh, real, embodied reality. Therefore, we need to build them a metaverse. And they should be able to plug into that, go in there, and experience their fantasies, experience a more just world. And it's incredible. It's an, it's an incredibly diabolical. Here I am. Uh, in this case, Mark Andreessen. Like he's. I think he uh, created the first web browser. He's a huge investor in startups and so on. Looking to make just untold profit off of this concept of the metaverse. And it's obviously 
evil, diabolical, destructive, to me at least, maybe not to you. But what I'm going to do is turn it into a justice story by saying that it will enable people whose lives are sucky in the real world to, to experience wealth and pleasure in a digital metaverse. Yes, yes. This is all the world, the flesh, and the devil working together, right? Because the metaverse and the theory surrounding the metaverse is a response, a frustrated response to how slowly people made the world Eden and how mixed the success has been. I have a small piece of land with no trees on it, and I want to plant fruit trees. I've just, and I know that they won't bear fruit for seven to 10 years. More than that, I can't afford the, the number of trees that I need in anything like that time frame. I mean, trees cost you know, between $100 and $500, depending on what they are. So it's like, great. So every planting season, what? I can buy three or four new trees. This is far from the hundreds of trees food forest that I would need to have a functioning ecosystem to transform the land, to conserve water. It's very frustrating, and I'm trying pretty hard to steward it well. And I could say, it doesn't work. People are too destructive, so what I'm going to do is make a space and a digital environment that speaks directly to a person's brain, gives them the same systems. It's not real, but you know what? We tried. We just decided to make the matrix instead. And the destructive end states of most human institutions are that kind of thing where, you know, when it comes to people who don't care about influencing human behavior, how unethical that is, they're frustrated because changing people takes a long time. Mm. It does. Have you ever tried to live life alongside people for a decade or so? It's, it can be, if you are impatient, like I can be, very frustrating because the human heart is the center of the issue. Jesus' solution is to rope people into families and through loving connection and the presence of God and the supernatural graces of God to transform that person on the level of their nature so they spontaneously respond differently. Now the world goes, yep, human nature is the problem. That takes too long. There's no time. What we need is to make some kind of radical top-down system that will stop human beings from destroying themselves. And I'm like, yes, but to do that, you have to destroy human beings as such. And that's just not okay. I'm sorry. It can seem frustrating. It's actually working. So the metaverse, oh my gosh. One, how arrogant and ridiculous that name is. <laughs> oh, we're talking, I'm sorry, about a higher order of existence over reality. Oh, you mean seeing reality according to Christ? Oh, no, sorry. You mean a digital environment that I put on a suit and a mask to engage with? That's ridiculous. It's fundamentally Gnostic. It denies the importance of embodied existence, incarnate existence. It denies the importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ ultimately. So another way of telling the story is the story of God, just as it pertains to your property, is that every act of stewardship, of cultivation, of whatever your work is in the world is a prophetic act of announcing the arrival of the kingdom, that um, everything that we set in order in reality prophesies to the world the coming kingdom. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul says, don't grow tired of 
in the work that you do because resurrection is coming. And so the, the story of God is that our work is not in vain, actually, that the, the mandate, the, Eden, the, the Edenic mandate of stewarding the world uh, is actually like the work of the church and it prophesies to the world uh, that Jesus is returning and that our stewardship of creation will be re fully restored and go on into eternity. The Gnostic story around the metaverse, and what, but, you know, just as a hint, we'll get into this a lot deeper um, on our series on transhumanism, which we'll do. The, the Gnostic story of the metaverse is something like bodies don't matter. Like real life, IRL is just an option of ways to live. IRL, the, the, it's, like, it's like giving you know, the, gen, um, the gender that is just being a man or a woman, the name cis, by, by labeling it, you, you, you put it next to other options that we're creating. Um, <laughs> so I guess that's a can of worms, but like, yeah. So IRL in real life being just one of the ways of, of, of inter interacting with the human being. And so bo bodies are irrelevant. We can plug our brains into computer interfaces and have perfectly proximate, perfectly meaningful, perfectly full, rich, experiences of reality of, of relationship and so on yes and let's uh, let's just also say before we move on that it's not true unreality is a lie in every way so the architects of the metaverse say we are creating an equal system where you can come be the designer but we have to acknowledge the fact that they are the designer and they make the rules and it will be very very unequal Facebook has thrived on gaslighting. You are in charge. You choose how you are perceived. You choose what you follow. You choose what you see. You don't choose any of those things. If you go on Facebook, Facebook chooses what you see. You don't have to follow a page for a page to show you its content. All they have to do is invite you, okay? We're talking about a system where you give over control of yourself to someone who's lying to you. So the metaverse says, come on in, we're gonna make it more equal and you can design what we want. And sure, if it just happens to design a system that extracts value from a person and makes them more of a slave, less of a free individual, gives more of their value to the company, that's all accidental. That's not accidental, that's the design. It is, it is the rosiest invitation to go be a slave and die in Egypt you've ever seen. Uh, just to throw one more problem in this mix of problems around the metaverse, my prediction is that it is going to be a profoundly demonic place. And uh, I'm just going like, I'm, I'm to throw this out there without much justification or explanation. We, we can get into it further in the future, but the idea that um, demons, that uh, the spiritual powers want to be embodied. They want, they, they want to seek their own kind of perverted form of incarnation. And we see it in all kinds of ways on physical bodies in which people mar themselves, harm themselves. Uh, I guarantee you that the metaverse is going to be a demonic place and that people, uh, whatever their avatars are, are going to become more and more perverse and that, uh, yeah, that if effectively Demons are going to like use the, the, the creative opportunity that, that human beings being rep represented with digital avatars presents as an opportunity to manifest themselves. Yes. You already don't know who's a person on the internet. 
And if you have a materialist worldview, they're either a person or an algorithm. It's going to be like demonic catfishing. Yeah. <laughs> demonic noodling, maybe, where you have to <laughs> stick your hand into like dark caverns and see what bites you. Nice. So we can finally make the turn here to what does a person do? You have the loss of the story of God. You have demonic destruction, oppression, and gaslighting. You have the world, which is anti-reality because reality would always ultimately point to Jesus. That's what Paul is after in Romans when he says, no one has an excuse. Reality reveals the existence and nature of God. You have, you have obstacles, friends. We get it. Nonetheless, there is a way to have a clear picture of the world, to sort of see things in a way that provides enormous relief. And, and, and the first one that we'll just talk about is that the scriptures say something bizarre when they say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the world says the scientific method, empiricism, good education is the beginning of wisdom. The scientific method, by the way, has never really worked. It's about to I break. can't wait to get into that one so much more. Scientism, the religion of scientism, we're, we're going to break that open. <laughs> so come back for that conversation. What we just want to go here is that uh, the fear of the Lord, what we're talking about here is right regard for, holding renown. This actually can include love and desire, but knowing when you know on every level of your being, in your body, in your soul, in your spirit, that Jesus is the center of reality, that Jesus is the one with the only power to save, the beginning and the end, you're actually positioned to see all things. That state is the precondition for all understanding. A second solution that we're going to recommend to you is that you experience an embodied life. It's weird that we would even have to say this because you are a person and in a body, but so much of modern life pulls us out of our bodies and so much of, our, of the ways that we get spun out in trying to access reality and ending up doubting our ability to access reality has to do with really the trauma of being disembodied. Um, it's, it's one of the ways in which people become divided. As we were talking about trauma earlier in this conversation, I was thinking, realizing that Last year, I spent a significant portion of time in this office that we were recording in by myself, physically, on countless Zoom meetings. Um, I don't do this anymore, but um, I, w I wasn't even like personally isolating for COVID reasons or anything else. I just ended up having a lot of time to myself in my office on laptops. And by the end of that year, I, I remember just like freezing in the middle of typing one day and laying down on the floor and feeling like I couldn't move and like I was just almost feeling kind of dead actually and it took me a minute uh, a while actually and uh and, and I, I I it took a it took me getting very sick and just being laid out for a, a while to realize like oh man I've actually been in incredible pain for much of this year and I didn't realize it because I was just you know ro uh, going along with my my digital life and I was lacking an experience of being a human being in my own body. 
It sounds dramatic, but I bet you experience it too if you uh, work on a, on a computer. So anyways, that's just an example, but we encourage you to be, to pursue embodied life, to pursue your life with God in an embodied way. And just as a, a kind of random grab bag of examples of that, it can look like breathing practices. Uh, this morning, I began my prayers this morning actually with, I just went to YouTube, pulled up the Wim Hof breathing method, and uh, my kids actually like joining me with this. Um, it's hilarious trying to watch them hold their breath. And anyways, we just kind of got like got recentered first thing in the morning, back in our bodies by by doing a very specific breathing practice. And then that that was followed by prayers, by uh, reading a bunch of pre-written prayers and reading the scriptures. Anyways, breathing practices of various kinds can can be an incredible way of pulling yourself back in your body. I I I kind of picture so much of how we live. Um, in the modern world with the the idea, I'm not sure where this comes from, but the idea of like um, jet lag, the problem of jet lag being that you, your body has moved so quickly through uh, across the earth that your spirit was left behind and it takes a while for it to catch up with you. And I'm not saying that's necessarily literally true, though I, 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 kind, of, I kind of believe it in a sense. Anyways, the, the idea is that like living on our laptops, living on our phones, does that to us in a sense. It, it, we, we end up a quarter of the year down the road and our spirits haven't had a chance to catch up to our bodies. Yeah, so anyways, I, I just recommend on a daily basis, like encountering God in your body, breathing, going for a walk in nature, going for a walk just anywhere, exercising and inviting Jesus to meet you in all those places. It, it's not a non sequitur, it really is a way of, an, of experiencing reality because the, the reality is that you are a human being and you have a body and you were not designed to live in a digital world. The way that God, God designed you to encounter Him, to encounter intimacy with Christ, is in your body. Yes. There are so many fun pieces here. I am not a good musician at all. I've accepted that about myself. But I still own some instruments and I love as a form of soul care to play them badly. Now I've learned enough that I can play, I think maybe at this point, two songs on a guitar, three or four songs on a violin. Because I would say in this domain, Listen to music, but oh, how much better if you can listen to a person play music? How much better if it's analog? How much better if it's your hands on the instrument? Yeah. And of getting closer and closer to letting your body breathe outside of trauma mode for a minute. I mean, you said walking. It's not for nothing that walking is always one of the practices that people point to that characterizes the lives of brilliant people. <laughs> Lewis took a walk every day, everybody. And... He wouldn't talk while he walked either. If he had to take a walk with someone, he'd like stop and look them in the face and have the conversation and then walk without talking. Mm. There's a lesson there. <laughs> it's so true. Like it's incredible how after a week of, of work and you're just feeling like less than a human being and whatever words you, you, would, you would apply to that, you're feeling kind of dead. If you pause and go for a walk outside and breathe fresh air and get sunlight on your body and during that walk, just Picture Jesus with you. Picture the Holy Spirit filling you. There, it's, it's hard to think of a better way to access reality. With the music thing, my kids and I will turn music on and just have a dance party. And 
the incredible anchoring in reality that is for me, it's at, at times, especially when I'm feeling just really torqued, um, sad, whatever, the, the combo of one, moving my body in a rhythmic way to music that is spiritually uplifting, and two, doing that with my kids or with my family, with my people, it reminds me that I have a family, that I am in a body, that I'm real. And it's, it's incredible how much we need to be reminded of that. Yes. This is, you can show off to your friends and dance and go, this is one of my epistemological practices. <laughs> yes. This is an epistemological strategy. Uh, but it really is. At, you know, like One more. These things sound so ridiculous, but go, I'd say, do you own any real art yet? Mm. Do you, do you own any images in your house that, and I love photography, but we're going to take that off the table for this one. And I mean, I know photographers who are doing brilliant things in the way they shoot and the way they print. So photography counts to get even more visceral for a minute though, go where an artist applied a real medium to a real surface. I love looking at drawings and just pausing for a bit to take in like the pencil marks to take in the colors of the paint and just to go having those things around having a lot of them versus having like my friends in college reproductions of even photographs reproductions of paintings digitized and then printed on cheap paper with poor inks like pasted to the walls and wondering why it didn't feel good mm. and going reality is your friend it will actually help you make sense of your experience. And, and the thing about it is, it's great way of prefacing the thing that is going to be the backdrop of the next two-ish points, which is that there's no fast way to do it, and that's okay. You can't heal a traumatized soul with more trauma. And we, I've talked about how frustrating the inefficiency can feel to me. Well, it's also okay, getting a picture of reality is a slow process that just happens to correspond to the rhythms inside of which human beings do really well. So another essential way to experience reality is in the context of family, is with people. And this may be biological family, it may be your spiritual family. For us, the, the two blend together pretty, pretty well. You are vulnerable on your own. And getting spun out with questions of what's real, what's going on, I have no way of knowing what's real and what's going on, uh, you're less susceptible to, to that when you're grounded in life with God's people. One of my favorite quotes is uh, something to the effect of the natural environment for truth is in human relationships. There are limitations to that quote, and it's also profoundly deep. It's super frustrating because I love this quote. One, I, I'm never confident I'm accurately quoting it. Like, it's, it's pretty close to that. And the person who said it, I cannot find it online. I was Googling the crap out of this quote earlier because I, I, I wanted to accurately represent it. I cannot find it. Anthony, Anyways. you make it sound like Google hides information from you, which is something they would never <laughs> I'm do. I'm not claiming that. But um, anyways, the natural environment for truth is human relationships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, which I can't recommend you enough, 
he says, the Jesus in my brother is stronger than the, than the Jesus in me. And the point he's making in that moment is, at times when you are struggling to believe the story of God, struggling to believe that Jesus exists at all, the gospel can be preached to you by the people that you're around. This requires that you live life with people. And so many times throughout the New Testament, we are, are exhorted to perpetually be speaking the gospel to each other, to be reminding each other of who we are in Christ. Somewhere it says, basically go around reminding each other of the gospel and singing songs and spiritual hymns to yourself. I'm forgetting what this passage is. But the idea is that, that we need to be constantly reminded of what the story is, what the truth is. And if we live with other people who believe the true story of God, who know the gospel and know how to read experiences through the gospel, uh, then they'll be there to remind you of it when you forget it. Finally, you need to experience Jesus directly. You need a, a direct person-to-person -person intimate encounter with Jesus. There's a lot to say about it. Let's just make it as simple as your vision of reality will never, ever, ever, ever be more accurate than your experience and vision of Jesus. Simply because the two ride together. We talked about the final level of apocalypse on our first episode as being seeing things the way that Jesus sees them. And so to be with God, to experience God, which is the target of all of the disciplines, is the thing that anchors a person to reality. We, we can only understate this point because the fact is Jesus is the Logos. Is the Logos, Lagos, Logos? It, there's, there's a right and a wrong way to mispronounce Greek. But I want to be consistent. Logos. Okay. Because Jesus is the Logos. He is the telos, the end of mankind. And he is, uh, he is our reality. He's the one who, whose word holds reality together. There is no reality without him. And ultimately, we'd be remiss in having an episode about accessing reality if we didn't point out that Jesus is our reality. Ultimately, like, what, like what is there to access? Because so, so much of this conversation, not to spin it out at the last minute, but has kind of, has implied that there is some uh, platonic or some, you know, fill in your word here, reality out there. But like, what's the nature of it? How does it exist? Ultimately, without, I mean, there are lots of ways to talk about this. We're not going to wrap that up here, except to say that the final answer, the bottom of that conversation is Jesus. So, uh, as a last comment on how we access reality, the, 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 the epistemological mode that we would recommend to you as a Christian is built on these three tiers. One is, like, so, like, the way that we know what's good, what's what, the way that we decide what's going on is uh, based on these three things. One, fidelity to the scriptures. Is the truth that you are agreeing with integrous with the story of the scriptures in as much as you can ascertain that? Two is the witness of the saints, um, the, the teaching of the apostles, the church fathers, um, your church leadership, the, the Christians that God has surrounded you with, is there agreement uh, there? And, thir and third, uh, is the Holy Spirit in you testifying 
to this? Is the Holy Spirit in you and the people that you do, do life with testifying to the truth that you are agreeing with? Yes, it is easy and hard. <laughs> easy because it begins with, do you want a good picture of reality? Well, you need to know that these forces are involved, uh, but we don't actually, though we began there, we don't begin there, which is one of those wonderfully circular biblical things go. You begin with an experience of Jesus. And you're going to loop back through an experience of Jesus because that's actually the bedrock of our orientation to our times so that we see them in love. It's the kind of thing where if a person says a real thing, a true thing, in quotes, in a mode of hatred, they have not spoken the truth mm. because actually form and substance go together. Emotion and content go together. So we need to experience God. And then as we begin to unpack, well, how do you do that? Well, fortunately, the things braid back and forth and back and forth in a very wonderful way. Go get out of trauma mode and then lean into these things of what is the testimony of the story? What's the consensus of the saints? And what is the revelation of the Holy Spirit? And so someone goes, so do I start with the Holy Spirit? Yes. But isn't that going to be included in the scriptures? Yes, yes. Can I tell you how a braid works? I feel like I have to tell you how a braid works. A braid is a single interdependent strand of fibers in which they both submit to and wrap up the others. Like it's a great picture of a good epistemological strategy, say a bad picture of the Trinity, uh, that... <laughs> It will show you loop back and forth through these places. Man, what the heck is going on? Go, well, my first question for you is, how is your love for Jesus doing? Man, do you think we're headed in an authoritarian direction? When did you experience God last? Are you stressed? Let's de-stress you and then ask you about the practices that made you experience God and encourage that you do those. If you've never had one, let's recommend some, which we'll continue to do in this podcast. Then, oh man, as I'm experiencing God, I'm feeling so alarmed about the state of my life. I feel like I don't know actually how to engage warfare, spiritual warfare. I don't know and go, okay, cool, well, Let's actually look in that. Here is what the Bible says. Here are some wonderful insights from the saints, ranging from C.S. Lewis, our unofficially uncanonized Protestant saint, all the way back to Theophan the Recluse and Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. And go, so these things, but then also, like, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. Do, are you resonating with these things or are you feeling what, you know, was termed when I was growing up, a check in your spirit? But it goes, man, the Holy Spirit can throw the brakes on your process. And most of us know how that feels. It can be described as a experience of desolation, but it's a moment in a process of understanding or relating to something when all of a sudden the forward momentum stops and go, 
Learn to recognize that feeling. That is your friend. Or it can prompt you for it. It can validate your experience. But inside that interplay, there really is meaning to be found. Our last encouragement for you in this conversation of how do we access reality is, uh, and it is an encouragement, is that this takes a lifetime. There, this is not a, a uh, access reality quick scheme. There's not one book that we're recommending to you. There's not a like, oh, just do these three things, uh, scripture, spirit, the saints, and boom, you'll get it right every time. You have a whole, the rest of your life to follow Jesus and to, um, and during like the rest of your life, you will be, Lord willing, conforming your sense of reality to the story of God. And it will look like getting closer to Jesus, being more unified with Jesus. So the way of wisdom, the ancient way of following God is, is not quick, and it's not simple, and as we said earlier, it's not efficient. Oswald Chambers, in, in one of his Night Must For His Highest devotionals, just says this phrase that used to drive me crazy, Oh, the extravagant leisure of God. He is lovingly and gently raising you up. Period. Yes, indeed. He is raising you up. Let's say into maturity, but also into wholeheartedness, raising you up like a father raising a son, also raising you up like a friend raises up someone who has fallen and is hurting. He is doing both of those things. And as we continue, we're going to discover more of that together. And we're gonna have to keep coming back to seeing reality through Christ including according to the way of Jesus, which is with rest and with relief and with love and with great hope and expectation. So there is a good way ahead. Yeah, so if you want to get connected more with Mount Vigil Project, go to mountvigil.org, M-O-U-N-T-V-I-G-I-L.org, and sign up for our email. That's that. Man, this podcast is going to spread exclusively by word of mouth because we will not use social media to get it out there. So if you know someone who would like this episode, please do send it along. And if it promotes a good conversation between the two of you, we will count that as an enormous success. Lord is coming, he's coming down his own. Lord is coming, he's coming down his own. Our Lord Jesus is coming back again.